Chapter 18 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 18. There was a little back sitting room in the house in Arsistan Square, which had been known in the Witcherleys' earlier days as the library. Angela had objected that there were no books in it, and that therefore it was not a library. So Mrs. Witcherly, who could see a point very well when her attention was directed to it, decided that it should be called the breakfast room, and issued a solemn kitchen decree to that effect. There were relapses into the use of the word library on the part of the housemaid, a creature of habit. Mrs. Witcherly took a strong line, and the weeping maiden obtained a fixed idea that the use of the word library was indecent. So the breakfast room triumphed and was securely established. Nobody ever breakfasted there, of course. It was in this room, lit by two red-shaded candles on the mantelpiece, that Claudius said goodbye to Angela. The dim rose light was kind to her pale face. Claudius had no longer any hope at all in his own heart. Mr. Richerly might attempt something. It did not much matter what he attempted. Claudius knew that Dr. Lamb would be clever enough to foresee that some such attempt might be made, and clever enough to checkmate it. Yet he spoke to Angela as if he would come back, perhaps, and she too spoke as one who hoped. Then, at times, a hard look of horror came into her soft eyes, and both were very careful not to raise the question of the purpose for which Dr. Gabriel Lamb needed Claudius Sandell. Remember, said Claudius, that as long as I live, I shall always be loving you. But not to hear you say it any more, cried Angela, if that should be, it can't be, it can't end like this. Oh, Claudius, dear love, what shall I do? Tell me what I should do. How shall I wait for you? Mrs. Witcherly had quite realized that this was an emotional hour in her house, and that for the sake of others she must bear up. To that end she took a glass of cocoa wine and found it a broken reed. The poor, silly, affectionate woman loved her beautiful daughter so dearly that the thought of Angela's unhappiness made composure impossible. She was in her bedroom now with her cap off, all sobs and sal volatile. The undignified love as much as the dignified. This idea of an emotional hour, this sense that there was sorrow in the house, had even permeated into the basement. Cook sniffed. The housemaid, the one who had never said library, now observed, It's my Sunday out tomorrow, but I shan't take it. A dark saying, a vague, well-meant effort to get into keeping with the general atmosphere. Mr. Witcherly sat bolt upright in a straight-backed chair in the drawing-room. He held the times in his hands, and thought he was reading it, and his face was solemn. 
He was ready, ready and waiting. He would hear the breakfast room door open and shut, and the front door open and shut, and the carriage drive away. And at that moment he would emerge with a most cheerful smile and take the broken, crying Angela into his arms. And he would say, Don't fret, Angela. It's all right. I couldn't tell you before, but I have taken this in hand myself. I have. Tomorrow morning you shall have news of Claudius. I promise it. I absolutely promise it. That would surely do some good. Her parents had entrusted Angela with comforting messages for Claudius, and with their farewells the messages were easily delivered. The rest was difficult. And as they will not see you tonight, and it may be long before they see you again, they asked me to say, Oh, Claudius, I don't want to say goodbye. Her breast heaved, and her lips trembled. Claudius drew her to him, and kissed her again and again. Neither of them spoke any more now, until the moment when Claudius left the house. He could hardly see. His head swam. He staggered like a man that has been drugged. Hardly had he flung himself back in his carriage before he fell asleep. Nature was exhausted. He did not wake until the carriage entered the drive before Dr. Lamb's house. Waking, he wondered where he was, for he had dreamed that he was back at home. Then, he remembered, he pulled out his watch and glanced at the time. It still wanted ten minutes to twelve. He got out, and just as he was on the point of ringing the bell, paused, changed his mind, and turned around. You can put my portmanteau down, he said. You needn't wait. Very good, sir, the man replied. There were still a few minutes of freedom left. Claudius clung to them. The coachman hesitated before driving off. Claudius had been very liberal. After all, it might be as well to mention what he had noticed. I beg your pardon, he said, but I'm not sure if you know we've been followed. Followed? Yes, sir. I noticed a hansom hanging about when I was waiting in Resistance Square. As soon as I drove off, the cab followed. It kept behind me all the way, and when I turned in here, went on a few yards and then stopped. It's there now. Anyone in the cab? Two men, sir. I only got a glimpse. Common-looking, they seemed. Thanks. You're quite right to tell me, though I don't know that it's of much importance. The carriage drove off. Claudius stood beside his luggage with his watch in his hand. After all, then, he supposed, Dr. Lamb had not trusted him and had put detectives on to follow him. The black shrubberies stood out clear against the pale sky. A breath of wind woke and rustled and fell again. All was absolutely still. In a moment, Claudius put his watch back in his pocket and rang the bell. The sound spoke out resonant far back in the house, and immediately the door opened, almost before the bell sounded. It was opened slowly and not to the full extent, not as Francis opened it. Mrs. Lamb stood there. She was barefooted, 
and in her nightdress. Her hair hung loose about her shoulders. Her eyes were wild and roaming. She spoke in a horrible whisper. I've been waiting behind the door for you. I got up and crept out, and they never knew. She shivered in the chill night air. Behind her was a chaos of packing cases. The carpets were up in the hall and on the stairs. The house looked naked. A gas jet flared without a globe. Mrs. Lamb, Claudius began. He was going to persuade her to go in. Poor, mad woman. But she would not let him speak. There is no time. Listen quickly before they come and take me. I have been sent by heaven to save you. You are to go away at once, and you must never come here again. She pointed to the passage that led to the study and laboratory. Gabriel's in there. Not the angel Gabriel, but the devil Gabriel. He's getting ready to kill you, sharpening knives. Every night I can hear him sharpen knives, though he does not want me to hear. Always sharpening knives. It goes like this. Brrr, brrr. She made a hideous, guttural imitation of the sound of a grindstone. At the same moment a door opened, and a woman in a plaid dressing gown came out. She had a cloak over one arm, and she said quietly, Mrs. Lamb, you must come back to bed. Hilda Lamb flung herself down on the floor of the hall, kicking and screaming. The nurse was a big woman, with a not unkindly face. She would not let Claudius help her, and indeed she needed no help. Her strength was enormous. She wrapped Mrs. Lamb in the cloak, lifted her, and carried her off. Then Claudius saw that the servant Francis was standing waiting at the further end of the hall. He now came forward, greeted Claudius respectfully, and began to carry in the luggage. Dr. Lamb is in the study, sir, he said. My dear Sandell, said the doctor, cordially coming forward as Sandell entered. Welcome to a half-empty and exceedingly uncomfortable home. I trust that you have been enjoying yourself in your absence. Claudius shook hands mechanically, thanked him mechanically, and sat down. The octave is over. Lucisti satis. How does it go? Tempus abire tibi est. You will notice the preparations for departure everywhere here. Indeed, had all been well, we should have gone aboard the yacht on Sunday afternoon. But there has been a sudden change in my wife's mental condition. I'm afraid that when you came in just now, you heard I saw Mrs. Lamb. The nurse took her back into her room. Believe me, I am very sorry. Well, this change though not uninteresting from one point of view, is of course exceedingly sad. And it has altered my plans slightly. My wife cannot possibly come with us now, and I have not yet finished the arrangements for her remaining in England. It may be Monday before we can start. Where are we going? Sandell, I own you now. I do not want to insist on that ownership more than is necessary for my purpose, and I cannot bring myself to give you an order like a servant, but I ask you for your own sake not to put questions to me about the future. Do not ask what I am going to do with you. 
Sandell looked the doctor straight into the eyes. I know very well what you're going to do with me, he said. You believe, said the doctor, that I intend to use you for the subject of experiment, and yet you keep your word. Well, I was sure you would. You were sure, Claudius said? Yet I have been followed by your detectives tonight right up to your house. My good Sandell, I have never employed a private detective in my life. I should think it dishonorable. And it has the additional disadvantage of being almost always useless. They are far from clever, that class, as a rule. At the same time, I can readily believe that you were followed here, and that you're being shadowed now. I can believe that there may be someone in London who has sufficient interest in you to be suspicious of your mysterious disappearance at a time when I understand you have every reason for not disappearing. Is that not so? Claudius remembered that Mr. Wycherley had said that he would work on his own account and in the dark. He saw it all now. I think you're right. I did you an injustice. I believe I know now who sent them. I have no doubt he believed he was acting in my interest, but it was done without my knowledge and authority. I should not have thought that I had any right to interfere with you in that way. Shall I tell you who I think sent them? No, said the doctor. I don't think his name would interest me. He can do nothing, of course. His very smart people will hardly come aboard my yacht. They're amusing to watch for a short time, but I don't propose to allow them to take a voyage with me. Sandell, the doctor added, after a pause in which Claudius had not replied to him, you look very tired and broken down. You are also very depressed. I will not keep you here much longer, for you need sleep. But there's one thing I want to say. You have done me one injustice tonight, perfectly trivial as it happened, and I am afraid that you also do me another injustice. You doubt my humanity. There was a time when you regarded me as a good Samaritan. You now regard me as a murdering devil. The reaction has set in, and possibly it has been assisted by the chatter of that mad woman. I heard her talking to you. Now I cannot let you suspect my humanity, and partly for that reason, and partly because I really trust you, I will change my mind and tell you what I have arranged. You are, of course, to be the subject of experiment. Claudius Sandell looked steadily and contemptuously at the doctor. I do not mean it in any offensive sense, the doctor continued, when I say that you are of no practical use to me for any other purpose. I value your good opinion, as I am now showing, and have always found you a most pleasant and interesting companion. If I were not yours absolutely, and had any right to suggest, I should suggest we pass over this part. My dear fellow, do not be so humble or so bad-tempered. I'm not Legree in Uncle Tom's cabin. You can suggest anything you like, and be sure that your suggestions will always be considered with respect, and adopted whenever it is possible. I do not bask and revel in villainy, and for the purposes of melodrama, I am useless. Your attitude towards me hurts me. For days and nights I have been planning 
how to make everything as easy as possible for you. Shall we pass over that also? Certainly, in one moment. I want to tell you how things stand. When the time comes, I shall ask you to allow me to administer an anesthetic. After a time, you'll regain consciousness. Then from thirty to fifty minutes you will suffer. The anesthetic will be administered again immediately. The doctor paused. And when I regain consciousness the second time? The doctor lit a cigar, blew out the match, and flung it into the grate. You will not regain consciousness a second time. That will be, in fact, that will be all. That is why you're leaving England? The doctor shrugged his shoulders. There is no privacy in England, he said. But I ask you to notice that the very most you have to fear is fifty seconds of suffering. Probably not acute. All the lurid pictures that your imagination may have conjured up, or my wife and her madness may have depicted, may be dismissed from your mind. I am emphatically a humane man. If it were not for my humanity, for my broad love of the race, for my infinite longing, that some future generation might be born not under the curse which weighs us down, but free and masters of their fate, I would not even ask you for that little thing, your life. Again, Claudius made no reply. Until that moment comes, when I begin the experiment, your comfort shall be my first consideration. No indignity shall be put upon you, except for that one purpose, and what is connected with it. You are free. I have a considerable fortune, said Claudius. I am afraid, said the doctor, that I cannot consent to accept gratuities. You have already told me that money was of no consideration with you. I was not intending to repeat my offer to buy myself from you. I wanted to ask if I were free to dispose of my money now and to will it after my death as I wish. Absolutely, perfectly free. And I may write letters? Certainly any letters which do not prejudice my main purpose. After we leave England, you will omit the address, of course. Thank you, said Claudius. I have only one more question. Is there any consideration whatever which would induce you to terminate our agreement, any consideration apart from money? I had thought that you would be likely to ask the question, and I have no objection to it. My answer is none, absolutely none. At that moment, Francis entered. The nurse would like to speak to you for a moment, sir. Excuse me, said the doctor, and went out. Claudius leant forward with his head in his hands. He felt how easy it would be to fall asleep and to forget. In a moment or two, the doctor returned. The nurse, he said, seems to think that someone should sit up with my wife tonight. It cannot be done. The nurse has not been to bed for two nights, and it would be hazardous to keep her up a third night, unless it were absolutely necessary, and I do not think it is. Fortunately, I have to be up all night myself. I have something in the laboratory which requires watching, and I shall be here until six. With the door open, I shall hear any sound. My wife sleeps downstairs now, you know. Yes, said Claudius, hardly conscious of what had been said. Yes, it is her idea that her dead baby crawls about upstairs and would disturb her rest. 
At any rate, she will not sleep upstairs. Claudius rose from his chair. May I go to bed now, he said. I'm so tired that I'm not very good company. Certainly. I hope you'll find your room comfortable. Francis will get anything you want. Whiskey and soda before you go? No? Ah, oh, Claudius, I'm sorry I can't give you my philosophy, and I won't insult you by trying. Everybody has the philosophy which is suitable to the situation of somebody else. My philosophy is the very thing for a man in your situation. Well, well, good night. May I make one request? Again, this Legree business. Do please ask for anything you want, said the doctor a little irritably. I want you to begin this experiment as soon as possible. To wait for it, that is hard to do. Be assured, smiled the doctor suavely, that I also am impatient. Good night again. Sleep well and breakfast just when you happen to feel like it. Claudius left the room and went upstairs without a word. The doctor went on composedly with his work, and two hours slipped by. He'd grown drowsy, and leaning forward with his head on his arms, fell into a doze. He often found that half an hour's sleep snatched in this way made a great difference to him, and sent him back to his work as fresh and energetic as ever. And as he slept, pit-pat, pit-pat, Across the stone floor of the hall came the sound of naked feet. Past the bare hall, where the windows had stared like lidless eyes since the curtains were packed away, and unfaded patches stood where pictures had been, and the naked gaslight flared. Past the hall, and down the passage, came Hilda Lamb, quiet and cunning as a cat, with all hell awake in her mad eyes. She opened the study door softly. She smiled when she saw that the doctor was asleep. Without a sound, she passed through into the laboratory and switched on the electric light. She opened the big mahogany case of instruments and was careful not to let the click of steel be heard. She took what she wanted, switched off the light, and came back into the studio again. The bright edge of the thing she held in her hand attracted her attention. Brrrt, 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 she said in her throat, imitating the sound of the grindstone. Dr. Lamb began to move his head. In a moment she flung herself upon him and thrust and hacked and pulled. A storm came into the dream that Claudius dreamed that night. The forked lightning split the sky. The thunder cracked and roared. Below were people with white, frightened faces, a dense mass of people, all looking upward. They began to howl with terror, waving their arms. The dream suddenly ceased, and Claudius was awake. He was awake, and the room was filled with smoke. Someone was knocking violently at the door and crying to him to get up. Fire! Fire! and someone outside in the garden was singing, a poor mad woman that had been rescued from the merciful fire. The servants of the house watched her in awestruck silence as she was dragged away, ceasing her singing from time to time and fighting hard to get back to the flames. The fire had broken out in the annex, in the doctor's study. 
This was completely wrecked before the arrival of the engines. The main body of the building was damaged but not ruined. In the gray early dawn, the police on watch talked confidently among themselves. I saw her myself, said one of them and there was blood both on her hands and face. It'll be Broadmoor. At a little distance from the house, Claudius stood alone on the road and looked towards London. A four-wheeled cab lumbered slowly up, and Francis, who had gone to Wimbledon to order it, jumped down from the box. It's the best they can do, sir. Thanks, said Claudius, as he got in. It'll do very well. Tell him to drive as quickly as he can. Yes, sir. Where to, sir? Ersiston Square. Francis shut the carriage door. Ersiston Square, he echoed, as he seated himself beside the driver again. End of chapter 18. Recording by John Brandon. End of the Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne.